Hello and welcome. This is the Fundamental Analysis Show on Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer and I'm here with Ryan Henderson, my co-host. Ryan, how's it going? Going good. Going good. We just recorded our interview um, that'll be coming out, I think, later than this episode, but it was with Justin Costelli. We had a good interview and now we are ready to talk Netflix. Yeah, talking Netflix, so you want to get into what they do and then the history of the company. We've gone over them before, so maybe skip a minute if you know the whole backstory of you read the story before. But Ryan, you want to give a little deep dive uh, for the listeners? Yeah, so Netflix is, and most people definitely, a lot of people know what they do, but they're a streaming service that allows members to watch a wide variety of TV shows, movies, documentaries, and uh, more you know, beyond that through their different internet connected devices because you can do it through connected TVs, laptops, iPads, whatever, iPhones. Um, So a whole bunch of different ways you can watch. Um, They run a subscription-based business model with three different pricing plans. So they have their basic, standard, and their premium offerings. Those range from $8.99 a month to $15.99 a month. And while Netflix is profitable on a net income basis, they have negative cash flow historically that changed this quarter, which we'll talk about, um, due to their upfront, due to the upfront cash that they pay for licensing content and producing their own original content. So due to the amortization structure, um, a lot of the content costs for Netflix are realized early. So they're paid up front and, um, as they've increased uh, content spend, their negative cash flow has grown. So if that all makes sense, they're earning money um, on a net income basis, but then they drop down their uh, cost structure for original content and licensing content to a cash flow basis, which gives them negative cash flow. Um, they are also making money through DVD rentals, which was funny small, small amount, small amount. Yeah, they don't even put it on the earnings anymore. They just say it's included in revenue. But interesting that that is still a thing and that does exist. Um, I'll dive into the history though. Netflix was apparently founded after Blockbuster gave founder and CEO Reed Hastings a late fee for not returning his Apollo 13 on time. He was outraged and embarrassed at a $40 late fee. I know, that's crazy. And he just has happened to have a $200 billion epiphany, um, which... I don't know. It sounds too good to be true almost. It's probably is true, but it basically he came up with this idea that you should let people rent out DVDs by mail. And so that's how he started Netflix. So you'd rent the video online, it would get delivered to your door. And then once you finished watching it, you put it back in the red envelope, which they ship to you, you put it in the mail. And once the post office got it, they would ship the next movie from your list. And eventually this evolved to a subscription offering of basically the same thing. It was uh, DVD delivery still. And then in 2007, they went a step further and began offering a subscription streaming service, which was only via the internet. So it was only via computer at the time. The incumbent player, Blockbuster, was always sort of one step behind. They kept launching like they, they would just repeat what Netflix was doing like two years later, um, which obviously ended up hindering them. Interesting note, though, Blockbuster turned down the chance to buy Netflix for $50 million in 2000, um, and Netflix IPO'd in 2002. I think I've told that story before, but you just know what Blockbuster could have been. Yeah, they made a great mistake there. Uh, and the story on Netflix, there is a biography of the <laughs> business itself, not just Reed Hastings or anything like that. And they were very scrappy at the beginning. Uh, Like they didn't even have a mail ordering system. They were just piling up uh, DVDs in the offices and stuff like that. So they were, you know, like 
that classic startup. Uh, but I guess whatever, read the book if you actually want to go over it. That's not what the show's about. I'll go through the valuation here. They have a market cap of $185 billion, ticker of NFLX, and a price of $421.42. And that is a 422-2020 Earth Day. Um, while we're recording this, they have EV to sales of 9.64. PE is of about 100. Although you do, as Ryan mentioned, you have to look at the amortization table uh, if you want to judge the earnings because you have to look at what uh, they do when they actually are spending money versus how they accrue that because they realize their content costs over 10 years on the earnings line, but they're actually paying all those costs up front or typically. So cash flow is probably the better metric or one you want to use in tandem. It has been pretty bad lately at 15% negative margin, although this quarter they showed that if they slow the content spend, they will be cash flow positive. No dividend, uh, as you probably will expect. Uh, shares outstanding have only gone up from 407 to 437 million since 2013. So see, you can get good talent, the best in the industry, without overpaying on stock-based compensation. There's a lesson to all those stocks that I do not like or that I like the business, but I get really mad every time they're diluting shares by 5 to 10% uh, every year, I guess. And then lastly, they have net debt of $9.7 billion. Uh, and the company said this should increase over time, although we've gone over this before, I think on a different fundamental analysis show on Netflix, the stuff is not due till 2024 is some of it, but mainly 2025, 2026. So they have a few years there, and then they have negative working capital, but Again, they do have that recurring revenue model. So if they do run into cash troubles, I think with this, the steadiness of the subscription, they should uh, be okay. Although I don't want to uh, make any conclusions there. Yeah. And also they do not have a hard time borrowing money. They've been able to do it at will. Um, and that's what they've done. That's powered their business. And with low interest rates, it's been easier for them to do that. Um, I'll get into the earnings though. And by the way, I think everyone should go read their shareholder letters. They write good shareholder letters. Even if you're not interested in the business, it's nice to see good management write good letters. Like that, It's a good read. It's well worth it. Um, revenue for the first quarter of 2020 was $5.8 billion, up 28% year over year. And just for reference, they released earnings like two days ago as of the time you're listening to this. So it's relevant information. Um, they added 15.8 million new paid memberships this quarter. So they now have a total count of 183 million paid memberships, roughly. Um, memberships grew 23% year over year. They had 958 million in operating income this quarter, up 109% year over year. 709 million in net income, up 106% year over year. Had 162 million in positive free cash flow this quarter versus almost negative half a billion in uh, free cash flow last year. So this is the first time being cash flow positive since the second quarter of 2014. Now it should be noted that they paused production. So well, they said they were going to be free cash flow positive before um, any of this new, uh, whatever the new, the coronavirus impacts hit where everything got all jumbled. So I think that was going to happen, but they just said- Just for the quarter or Yeah, for just the for, the, for the quarter, uh, okay. but they're still guiding for negative 1 billion in free cash flow this year. Okay, interesting. Um, and then their operating margin was 16.6% versus 10.2% last year. Apparently, it would have been 20.4% if it weren't for a uh, $200 million in incremental content costs because they had to do something like upfront. 
because of coronavirus. And then they had hardship fund commitments is what they said. So probably donating basically to the cause or trying to, you know, make one-time expenses to kind of salvage any aspects of the business that might be hurt. Um, despite higher than expected paid net additions, revenue was in line due to the sharp increase of the U.S. dollar versus foreign currency. So I didn't know about this, but the U.S. dollar, its value increased in in relation to other currencies because I uh, throughout the coronavirus and this wasn't expected, I guess. Um, and so that if 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 you think the net additions were higher, however when you have to exchange the rates to the U S dollar revenue actually kind of came down if that kind of makes sense. Um, so revenue ended up being in line with expectations, even though net additions were higher, excluding foreign exchange, um, ARPU would have increased 8% year over year. That's globally. They finished the quarter with $5.2 billion in cash. Um, they have an undrawn $750 million credit facility with roughly $500 million due in short-term debt. Not to mention free cash flow outlook is a little better than they expected at negative $1 billion for 2020. They stated they have more than 12 months of liquidity with flexible financial options. Welcome back. Let's hit the second half of the show. And first up, as always, digging trenches, and that is the moat rating. And we did some, well, Ryan did some preparation for this one. Uh, so you want to talk what the crowdsource moat rating was? Yeah, I did a little bit of um, kind of preemptive research here for this. And I'm going to pull it up on Twitter because it ended with 911 votes. I, I basically, I asked on a scale from zero to three, what would you rate Netflix's moat, just like we do? and um, gave everyone an option. There were polls. It was a poll, 911 votes, and 52% of people said they'd give it a two, a strong moat. 12% said it was impenetrable. One said it was weak, or 30% said one, weak but exists. And then 6% uh, said zero, no moat. So most people gave them a two. And I would have to agree. I'm, I'm borderline three, though. I think it's developing. My only thing right now is the value of their IP versus the incumbents. That's And so when you say that, I think Disney typically. Um, and then just generally, there is a lot of competition. However, they have proved time and again that incumbents can't just enter it and automatically be successful. Apple, Amazon, um, I'm trying to think of other ones. Uh, it, it's not guaranteed that you're going to do well. And then on top of it, it's super capital intensive for a startup to just enter it. So Maybe you've got the IP, but you don't have the production abilities that Netflix has. You don't have the 
recommendation algorithms, that kind of thing. It's a lot, it's a much more difficult business than people think. So I'm going to go with a solid two. I'm going to, I think I'm going to give it a three just because if you've seen three of the largest businesses in the world, and I guess you can count Comcast in there as well, going to hop on this and AT&T. So you got Amazon, Apple, uh, and Disney all launching stuff after Netflix has started and Netflix has continued to accelerate their lead um, and just shown that they've been been able to prove they have a moat basically against anyone um, unless someone else wants to spend $20 billion a year on the streaming service, which no one is doing right now. So I think I'm going to give it a three, um, although I'm not uh, invested in the company, uh, but I guess we'll move on to the next section and that is further reading. So what do you want to look up if you are interested in investing? So contracts with the actors is something that I'm looking at. Actors, actresses. Um, I know they're different. It's like a set salary. So obviously, um, so that structure is different than what studios do. Cause I know studios, you get basically bonuses here and there if the like box office does well. So, and obviously there's no box office when you go with Netflix. So a lot of it's structured. I'm curious which the uh, which style the actors actually prefer, and then what are the nature of those contracts? Do they go exclusive? I know they signed Ryan Reynolds, um, and I'm not sure if that means he's not doing any other stuff right now. How does that work? Can you sign actors exclusively to your platform? Um, right. I don't know exactly. I can give a little light on that, but all I know is that, say, they sign a big name for like two to three years, and it's like a $100 million deal, something like that. That means that they have a set amount of commitments they have to make to Netflix, whether it's like eight things or three things or something like that. But I don't think it stops them from working from someone else. I could be wrong on that though, but I do believe what I've heard, not from any individual sources, just from reading things. Uh, obviously, I don't know any actors or anything, but they uh, like it because it gives them a lot more flexibility. So you get like a three-year contract and you get all this money and you could basically do, I mean, you have to stay within your niche, but you basically like do what you want. They give you a ton of flexibility, which I think a lot of the creators do like. Okay. Um, what are you looking at for further rating? So it's tough because this business is so simple and it's kind of ironic that it gets so much time on Twitter, CNBC and the like, just because it really is a basic business at its heart. But I do want to know what their plan is to do next within streaming or without. Do is it the next five years just the same trying to feed the flywheel of content subscribers, you know, just whatever, all that raising prices, stuff like that. Or is there something outside of streaming that they're going to go to next? Because it, it will not, the growth in streaming will not last forever, although it should last for the next few years at least. Um, but they do play it close to the chest. Uh, so I'm not sure there's going to be anything out there. I would just want to know, like, is it going to be cloud gaming eventually? Stuff like that. Okay. Future growth opportunities. What do you have? Okay, mine's simple. Again, very simple business, but it is raising prices. So right now, premium, uh, which is four screens, super high definition, and you can watch from anywhere, is $16 a month in the United States. So that's basically $16 for a family or any sort of family structure. I believe, and I'll try to convince the listeners if they don't believe this, that people would easily pay 20 bucks for this right now and eventually will be willing to pay 25 bucks for this. It's basically like one movie plus TV show a month, which is what Netflix gives you, whether the movie is a film, uh, like a fiction film or a documentary. 
they've proven that they can give you that once a month. And then if you don't like regular scripted shows, they have a lot of the unscripted stuff, which people call garbage. Uh, you know, like the, the, the too hot to handle things like that, mm-hmm. that, but that's some of the most popular uh, content for a lot of the demographics in the United States. And it is still going to cost less per month than what it would cost to go to the theater or and have the cable bill. So the theater and cable structure, which is what you'd have before if you wanted to see movies um, and watch television shows. So I, that's why I think they have a lot of pricing power. Yeah. And okay. So l- let me give you a scenario. If you had, if you could only pay for one streaming service, you it, it's $30 or let's go $25. You get one streaming service only. I think most Americans would choose Netflix. Oh, you have, I mean, unless you're just, you, you have to choose Netflix unless you really like an individual show. Or if you have like kids under the age of eight, maybe Disney. I mean, I don't like Disney Plus, but then again, I'm not under the age. I don't know what kind of original content they're putting out in terms of like really audience size. Um, but even Netflix has that stuff um, for younger kids. So yeah, I agree with you. I think there's definitely room to raise prices. I think they know that. Um, and at least having a good blend of price raising because you don't want to raising prices immediately in some of those emerging markets. Um, I'll get into mine though. I think they should hedge foreign currency exposure. And ma- oh. so they must, they must something I don't in terms of why they're not doing this, but as international growth continues to outpace the U S and Canada, more and more that top line is going to come from other areas around the world. And they stated in their earnings and it's starting to, you know, I mean, it's starting to show because revenue was less than they would have projected with the certain with the net additions that they had this quarter. They said, as a reminder, more than half of our revenue is not denominated in U.S. dollars, and we don't hedge our foreign currency exchange exposure. Given the volatility of foreign currencies, particularly in emerging markets like Latin America, maybe some of the Asian Pacific areas, don't you think it seems valuable to protect that downside? I'm, they stated if the value of the U.S. dollar stays where it's at, like in relation to the foreign currencies, they'll simply adjust their models. But they are expecting a decrease in operating margin if it stays this way. So why not hedge? Yeah, I think it should. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like an airline uh, with oil. It's going to impact your business a lot. Um, and I, nah, I mean, there is a good case for it. I definitely, it's kind of like the airlines with oil. Um, I know there's... But- I know they're spending tons. Uh, their capex is probably going elsewhere, um, and maybe there is some simple adjustment they can make to their models. But it it seems like a no brainer, especially right now. Like it, in the you know, no one knows how a lot of these emerging market governments are going to be affected um, yeah, because of coronavirus. Yeah. They're taking know. a little. They're taking a little bit of a risk there, um, but. That's what they've always done. So I guess I don't. I do not think they're gonna change that. I mean, we could play executive all we want, but we, you know, we're not. Probably, yeah. I mean, they probably know. They probably they've probably looked it over before. It's not like oh, well, that happened. Um. Anyway, all right. Highlights and lowlights. What uh, What do you have? Okay, I'll put down pricing power. I know a lot of people disagree on the pricing power thing, but I think it's clear. Uh, and if. I don't know. We're not going to convince anyone with just going over the show though. Uh, I think they have the best UI slash business practices slash uh, technology in their industry. 
Uh, they have basically also they have basically all of their 2020 content in post production. They mentioned that on the earnings letter or the call. Um, this is a lot different than other things. So uh, they mentioned that the Crown, which is one of their most popular shows, is going to be coming out in the fourth quarter of 2020, and that is already in post production. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot more running room than say a movie studio or things like that. And then they're also going to have a benefit if the studio if the theaters are closed for a lot longer and uh, other things that are related to that, I think a lot of the studios are going to want to bring back their content to Netflix just because that's the best and cheapest way to get some cash flow in. Netflix will pay for it, and then it'll centralize where people want to watch. Um, you, know, you know what I mean? Like If things aren't going to the theaters, they're going to want people to yeah. watch their movies no matter what. And then lowlights for me, debt levels are obvious. There's uncertainty on the cash flow and the pricing power may disappear in a long-term recession. There are some decent arguments on that. Although I don't really believe that just because I think the cable bill, the bundle goes first. Yeah. Okay. So uh, one of the things you stated there is kind of my low light, which is that pause in production. Um, But you brought up a good point. So I'll, I'll hit my highlights first. I think the business model that they've been preaching for so long is beginning to unravel. We're starting to see that. Start working your way from the top to the bottom. Okay, and and you, you mean, sorry, you mean unravel in a good way. Yeah, yeah. No, we're starting to see that. Um, and you're, if you look at it from the income statement from the top to the bottom, you're beginning to realize that profitability is coming in droves. It's, there's a lot, I mean, 106% uh, profitability on the net income side. Obviously, the cash flow is another story, but as that content spend I mean, they proved if they stop spending con if they stop spending on content, obviously there's still stuff coming out right now. They're profitable on a cash flow basis, um, or they could be, right? But my problem here is that there will be the pause in production. I know that they have tons of content that was basically finished and waiting for release or in the post production process, so they should be fine for the coming quarters. But with the current halt in production uh, all around the world it's likely going to translate to slower membership growth when that production was set to be released. So whether that was a year and a half from now, unless like you said, they have to, they sign kind of interim two year deals with some of these other producers and have it come out on their con on their platform, which is probably a good idea. I think that's the best way to do it because there's going to be a whole block of area where there isn't a lot of original content coming out because there was no production. Um, Another one here. um, I think that with the current halt in production, it might provide some of those incumbent players. So like Disney and even uh, Comcast with their new, what is it? Peacock is that what it's called? Um, I think that might give them a chance to flex their existing IP. If if Netflix at the time isn't coming out with a lot of good original content, uh, Peacock and Disney Plus might be able to say, "All right, we've got more value here for what we're offering." Eh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you can, you can make that argument, but I don't really, I don't really believe it. Friends, Seinfeld. The Office, I think a lot of people would be willing to watch that if Netflix was struggling to produce original content. Yeah, but you have to remember, they do get, and it's just one show, they do get Seinfeld in 2021. They do lose The Office, though. Um, I don't know where that, I think that's going on Peacock. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's such, like, you would think, all right, there are some negatives to the slowdown for Netflix, but net overall on the entire industry, they're definitely getting a benefit 
uh, from this. Yeah, I mean they're taking market share. Yeah, and they've proved they proved that. Uh, you know, by the slight bump, and they talked about it on the earnings. Uh, the the I don't know if it was the earnings call, but on the earnings release, they said we saw an increase in growth in the net additions when the stay-at-home orders went into effect. Yeah, and you can see that. I mean, the subscriber numbers were giant, 16 million. All right, uh, last up, rating, what do you got? I'm going a solid 7.5. And so here's my thing. I think the business model is sound. I And they do have a mo. And, and I talked about this with uh, one of the investment analysts from Ensemble Capital, and he talked about it a lot. And he said, basically business is worth its future cash flows is essentially what he's saying. And I think they can charge air. I don't see why they couldn't grow at 20% top line for the next 10 years, whether that's ARPU or international growth. And that's, I mean, but then there's the part of me that says, I don't know if I want a company that's fringe $200 billion trading at earnings multiple above yes. 100. Yeah, and I'll go into why my rating will be very similar to yours. But yeah, they are too popular for my taste, which puts it into the too hard pile for me. And they are the law of large numbers, which also puts it into the too hard pile where I think a lot of the growth is priced in. I do not believe, and there are a lot of people that think Netflix is going to fail. I don't believe they're going to fail. Would I be surprised? Yes, but the, they do have the capital structure and the negative cash flow that you know you could say like, oh, things went wrong. So it's not going into my portfolio. I don't think ever unless we see a huge drop in the share price and the business still continues to climb, which it's talked about so much, I really don't see that happening. So I'm going to give like a 7.3 right around yours. Um, it's, it's on my watch list. It's been on my watch list, but I mean, it's just, it's too efficiently priced, right? That we both agree on that. Yeah, I don't. I think this could be a market outperformer for the next five to ten years. Um, like, I don't think you're going to go wrong. Like, I don't think you're risking all your money by putting it into this. But it doesn't. Like, this isn't. I'm not buying it because there. Is, one, it feels like too many people know about it. There's no. Um, you you have no advantage there. Yeah. And it the law of large numbers eventually comes into play. Yeah, I'd rather try to find the companies that are in the Netflix phase what they were before 2010. Um, I know that's a lot harder, but that's what we're trying to go here for. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to follow us, as always, on Twitter at ChitChatMoney and email us show suggestions at ChitChatMoneyPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you.